I'm Scott Kerr, and you're listening to Facing the Giants, a podcast where I speak to today's luxury entrepreneurs about taking on the Goliaths of the industry. My guest today is Gene Lin, founder and creative director of Colony, a cooperative gallery, design studio, and strategy firm with a singular aim to celebrate independent design and support the community who creates it. When Jean founded Colony in 2014, she established a new kind of platform for New York City's thriving community of independent furniture, lighting, textile, and object designers. She created a place for independent designers to showcase stunning works of creation without a big chunk of their profits being taken away by galleries. Welcome, Jean. Hi, Scott. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. How did the idea of Colony come about? What did you see that was going on in the market that wasn't being addressed? Yeah, so the the big kind of leap happened. I still actually still end up selling my blog for like a carton of cigarettes and 20 bucks <laughs> to this company called Designer Pages. And I was working as an editor there. And, you know, I was in an editorial world, in the editorial role in design, you really see, you talk to designers, you see what they're working on, you talk about the newest, newest thing. Um, but it was really when Hurricane Sandy hit um, New York City right. that that role changed for me because I came up with this idea to do a charity exhibit called Reclaim NYC. And at that time, you know, downtown Manhattan was devastated. A lot of part, a lot of Brooklyn was devastated. The design, the independent design community, which is kind of this term that I was like, what do we call these guys? You know, they're, they're all like working in their own shops. They're all trying to do their own thing. They're making their own work. So we call them, I call them now the independent design community. Um, they were all sort of like really busting at the seams to try to help and do something. I think everyone was in the city at that time. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I kind of rallied the troops through my editorial role and had them make work out of debris from the storm. And then we sold that for charity. So we had an exhibit. I think the storm was around Halloween at the end of the end of October. And the exhibit was in like early December. So it was really, really fast and furious. And it felt very magical. And everybody felt really involved. And, you know, it felt very community driven. And, you know, we got a ton of press is, you know, we, we sold all this work, we raised all this money, it was amazing. But that was my first sort of my first kind of toe dip into understanding these practices, these design practices beyond the editorial role. So I was really, you know, I was getting drinks with these guys, getting dinner, you know, working, kind of working together at their shop and talking about what, what they're, what they're up to. And just, you know, it was like a few studios and just over and over again, the same story. Like we're working so hard. We don't have, we're all in Brooklyn or the outer boroughs. We don't have a way to get our clients to see the work and to experience the work because, you know, it's not, it's not inexpensive, you know, so that's a really important aspect of it is experiencing it before you purchase it. The places that are available to them are the, the sort of, the model was not conducive for somebody who makes their own work or sources with local vendors or sources with local materials. What was the model? The model is, the model was, and I believe on the, in the large part still is that a gallery or showroom or retailer will take 
somewhere between 40 to 60%. I think the best I've heard is 30% mm-hmm. of every sale and it's commission, you know, like they have to make money too. And, and now being a gallery owner for almost eight years, I understand that like the th- 40 to 60% makes sense. Cause you need to make money off these sales take six months to a year to, to sort of get into the books, you know, right. But for the independent maker, that's just not a, it's just not a tan, it's not a sustainable model. You know, you can't, they're just spending way too much on the production and not enough and not bringing enough in on every sale. Even, even if let's say a gallery sells at volume and sells a bunch of your work, even at that, that's, that was the main problem, right? Like you can't scale that. If you can't, if, if you can't scale it, if you're making like hundreds of sales every quarter and and you're still trying to just tread water there's a problem there with that model so that was like the main that was the main kind of issue that I think I was hearing over and over again at that time the secondary problem was really this idea of space like literal square footage in the island of Manhattan on the island of Manhattan you know Mm -hmm. like I was, we were planning our second exhibit for Reclaim NYC and I was literally like knocking on doors and begging because we couldn't afford a commercial, a commercial lease. We couldn't even afford to like rent a place out for a weekend, you know, in the city. It was just too expensive. And it felt like space in the city equals power. And we just, we being kind of like the little guy, the independent just didn't have any. So those were the two kind of really big and main recurrent themes that I was coming up against mm-hmm. um, that kind of gave me the idea to start Colony. So explain Colony to the listeners. So Colony is, well, we're a gallery. We have 2,000 square feet in Tribeca. Which it's actually on Canal Street, but it's on the south side. So I call myself Tribeca. We have a back entrance on the Spinard Street. For those who know the city, it's a really beautiful classic Tribeca street. So we're we're in Tribeca. We operate in the spirit of a co-op, a cooperative. So rather than taking those large commissions on every sale, what I do is I charge my designers a co-op fee. It's essentially a rent. And then we take a very small commission. So the idea is that the designers that participate in our cooperative, they're able to actually grow with their sales. It's, it's a little bit of, it's a little bit of a tough, at the beginning when nobody knew what Colony was, it was a little bit of a tough conversation because the, all they saw was that, was that co-op fee, that upfront payment, you know, and no guarantee for sales. But once you, once you're in it for a while, you realize like, I just need to make one, literally one sale. And then I'm, yeah, to cover that fee. And then everything past that is almost like inside sales for them. You know, like our commission is, we've modeled it so that the commission is small enough that either they can kind of absorb it into their costs or we can sort of adjust the pricing so that it doesn't even really hurt their bottom line. So aside from the fee structure and the payment structure, what is the difference between Colony and a traditional gallery or a showroom or a store? I mean, I like to think that 
we're more community driven, you know, we have, we're limited in how many designers we can represent just because of bandwidth and because of how much sort of relationship, relational sort of energy goes into each designer that we represent. You know, some of our, my contemporaries have, for example, you know, they'll have anywhere between 75 to 150 designers represented on their websites. We have 15. I think that we, you know, before and before times, we would have community events. We would we would invite designer independent designers who weren't weren't represented by Colony. But you know, I, I never wanted to feel exclusive. I always wanted the community of independent design to feel like this was a place for them. And that has always been sort of one of our my driving motivators in how we sort of move about the world. I think you said that Colony was about, you know, you said we curate designers and not pieces. That's, that goes back to the, the, the central focus of relationship. You know, I think a lot of galleries and shops will look at individual pieces and say, I can sell that, you know, like that's the piece, that's the one, you know? That's just not the way my brain works when it comes to like how I deal with people I care about. So it's really important that I'm able to trust the output, the new output of what a designer will will be bringing into into the space. And that's what I mean. So like the, the, the relationship is much more important than the individual pieces because they need to trust that I, that I and my team can sell the work, but I also need to trust that they're not going, they're gonna pr- be producing work that's sort of within the design vernacular that I'm familiar with, that, they, that I know that, there's, that they are bringing to the table. So how does the gallery space help these independent designers get noticed? I mean, the physical thing is, it's a little bit turned on its head now because of COVID, but the physical aspect of having an actual space to send clients to, to send, to have events, to open our doors to, that was from the very beginning and, and still is even, even given the pandemic, I think the number one most important thing, especially in this line of work, because it needs to be experienced. Um, I always say like, it's not just about seeing something with your eyes, right? It's about touching it and feeling it, but it's also not just about feeling it with your hands. It's also about how it makes you feel, you know? It's like an emotional, it's an emotional experience, not just a physical one. First and foremost, I think having a physical space that is in line with what these what the aspirations of all of these makers want their work to be at that's like the number one most important thing and then you know i think being in a in a community that of like-minded people of equally impressive and work uh, impressive work of quality i think it goes a really really long way to legitimize a single like one guy in his shop making a table (laughs) to, and that's able to sort of catapult, even just add that, that, multiply that guy into 10 guys, you know? Mm -hmm. And they're all great tables, 
like that is what colony does and it's and i'm not saying that my designers are one guy in a shop anymore we're far from that at this point but that was the kind of that was the idea that was the ethos and that that was that still is like multiplied into you know like eight years of you know success and notoriety and and building this business i think that 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 still holds true you know like one one shop one design studio can do only do so much but if you put it together into a community of 15 design studios all doing amazing work it just amplifies it right so how do you how do you market them do you have regular shows do you, you know with all the designers the in the space and you invite you know select people to look at it how does how do you get them to see the and and engage with these designers yeah i mean we have shows, we have, I always say we have two sets of clients. We have the independent design community that has to be here for us, has to be supporting us, whether they're part of Colony or not. It, it legitimizes us to the rest of the design industry. And then we have, we have our interior design clients. So yeah, we have events, we have, I, it's so weird to talk about this way, but it is, it's like before COVID, it was very different. We would have very regular events for all all sorts of different parts of the industry different people in the industry would have we had like yoga and we had sound baths and we would have like ceramics workshops and floral arrangement workshops and we those type of things i think established us as a, a community space as much as a gallery and then for on the trade side, as far as like the architects and interior designers, I think they love those things. And they, I think that they love to um, participate in that side of the, those, that side of things as well. But it's also like a really quiet kind of cool space for them to bring their clients and just sort of sit and talk and experience the work and have some tea and, and listen to music, you know, and, and, and just be surrounded by really beautiful kind of, you know, substantial work. How many designers do you uh, currently work with? Uh, are they mostly furniture too? Right now we have 15. Um, mm-hmm. It would be, it is mostly furniture. We have two lighting designers, um, Allied Maker and Beck Britton. We have a wallpaper company, Flat Vernacular, and then we have two textile artists, Hiroko Takeda and Meg Callahan. And then everyone else um, does mainly furniture. And what are the challenges in choosing the designers or artists to showcase? Like what's your curation process? You know, at the very beginning, it was, it was like my gut. <laughs> Just like most of this interview, I'm like very touchy-feely, very idealistic, very, you know, like much more talking about feelings than about practicality. But I just, yeah, so at the beginning, it was like, I like this, and I think this is good, so I'm going to ask them to be a part of the colony, you know? Mm-hmm. And now, after this many years, you know, it feels so bad to not be able to sell something and to have a designer join and not do well for them in the sales department that that's, like, a huge part of it now is... Um, this layer of sellability and marketability and whether or not through the years of our experience as just straight up salespeople, like whether or not we think 
something has a place, like a, a substantial place in the market. And how often do you rotate the uh, roster of designers? You know, that's another thing that kind of sets us apart. I don't make it a point to be always getting a fresh rotation of designers in here. I think that the designers, the designers themselves make work and they're pushing themselves to always make something new. So if you choose the right designers, you don't necessarily have to be constantly rotating them in and out. So, you know, a lot of my designers have been here from the very beginning for eight years and still are. We have a program called the Conception Series that is much more like an incubator type thing. Uh, they, they never really, those designers never really join the co-op proper. It's much more of an incubator where we take them through a workshop and we represent some of their work for a limited number of time and then we set them free into the world. But that's, a, that's on the other side of the business on right. the consultancy. What about designers that don't succeed at Colony? What is usually the reasons why they don't, things don't work out? Is it the marketing always, skills? Is it you know to sell their work <laughs> or just the lack of client interest in their pieces? I always blame myself. This is like a real window into my soul, but I always blame myself because I always think that there's if they're in Colony, there's there ha, there was something that was if they got through the first process of even getting into colony, mm -hmm. there, there was something there, you know? And when something doesn't work out, which it, it does, and it, over the years, it really has, you know, like I'm not gonna sugarcoat it, like it, ha it happens a lot. A lot of designers have left that haven't really, haven't done as well as, as a lot of the other designers. And I think, I think it might be just more like a dynamic situation of like it's nuanced right like right. did we do a good did we did I do a good enough job of getting the word out there that they're part of colony now did they do a good enough job of sort of trusting us to sell their work there's a there can be a dynamic sometimes where and I think this is much more common in the um, traditional traditional model of galleries but it's also happens here, unfortunately, sometimes where the designer becomes almost adversarial with the gallery mm -hmm. because they don't want to, they don't really want to um, pay the commission. Right. <laughs> so, right. And, and you know, I think we, I've done everything I can to the point of insanity to try to eliminate that factor, but it still happens. It's just natural. It's like human nature. You know, if I'm going to be really, really honest, if I look back at the designers who have sort of dropped off in a non amicable way, I feel that for whatever, whoever is, whoever is failing, it was that sort of dynamic can really get in the way of success here. So let's talk about your clients. What do they come? What do they come to you for? Are they professionals or just collectors? The clients are generally, I would say, seventy-five percent of our clients are design professionals, architects, architects and designers mm -hmm. who are working on people's homes and they're purchasing for their clients. We have a great clientele of you know, consumers who are buying things for their home, but generally people at this level of the market who are willing to spend, you know, $7,000 on a chair, 
will be working with a professional at some in some capacity. I was just saying, how, how do you educate them and get them excited about the idea of these independent designers? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of been the mission of Colony from the very beginning, honestly, you know, like making the design world realize the value of working with small businesses and small vendors and how that brings value to not only their project, but also the industry as a whole. And I would even say like, maybe like on a macroeconomic scale also, you know, supporting the small, the world of small business and the world of these people who are making things with their hands every day is, has been my mission from day one. So how do we do that? You know, we have to be creative. We have to, we have to have those community educational sessions. We have to bring them in the room. You know, our openings are fun. There's, there's booze, there's music, there's cute outfits. (laughs) There's the whole, you know, there's the whole shebang, but really it's also about bringing people who are on the opposite ends of the spectrum of the industry into the same room together. We have everyone from our most affluent, influential client in the same room as the person who sanded, not even made, (laughs) but sanded the credenza that is in their living room. You know what I mean? And that's something really magical that um, I don't know if the people in that room even can identify that at the time, but I think that's what makes Colony so, so special in the industry is that educating the consumer or educating the end user about the value of these, these, these works is not something that, it's not something that I'm, I necessarily have to say overtly, you know, it's, it's much more about building the connections, bringing people into the, bringing people into the same conversation together and understand, like bringing that understanding together. Yeah. Are you finding end users are more interested in independent designers these days that they'll be able to tell their friends and their family that they have this original piece by an independent designer and just shows that they have, it's more about this exclusivity play. I think that end users are more, are interested in value and longevity and not sort of, sort of, going with the flow of everything. (laughs) And that does mean more research and more sort of seeking out special things, you Mm -hmm. know? And I think it's, it is about the narrative. It is about what they want their home to represent. It's not just, it's not just contemporary work, you know? I think the idea of having a home that feels collect like curated and curated over time versus just sort of put together and you know collected over a short period of time is is just more appealing to people who are spending more time there you know right what is what is colony's business model is it pretty straightforward with the commission how how does uh, the business model work so they make money (laughs) (laughs) that's a 
That's a great question. Um, <laughs> we we don't make very much money on the commission as a as I had had sort of sketched out for you. Um, so about two years in, a year and a half in, I started a consultancy too. So we have a we have the we have the co-op side where we do, we are, you know, it is a source of revenue. It's, it's a very significant source of revenue. It's, it's a marketing machine. It's a part of, it's the marketing driving factor and it's, it's the heart and soul of the business, the co-op. Um, but the consultancy is a major, major, major part of the revenue. And on the consultancy side, we do interior design we do branding, we do art direction, we do marketing, content creation, because that's kind of my background too, is the writing and the, and the content side. So, you know, it's that classic, that classic case of diversifying your streams of revenue because the one that you started with was not, well, you know, like I knew it wasn't really going to make very much money. It was all right there in the, on the spreadsheet. Right, right. Um, but I, I just had this belief that if we did something really special, then people would want to work with us. And thankfully, that's been the case. And, and there was a moment where I realized that I had to figure out a way to let all of those other types of businesses on, into the umbrella that, you know, like the, that the independent design business world that we were trying to support wasn't going to benefit from me just saying like well we only work with independent designers you know I remember the um the CEO of a really big big box retailer came in and you know he just came in randomly one day it was like a Thursday at like Mm -hmm. two you know and he gave me his card and he said this is so great we're doing this and this and this and how, how can we work together and I didn't have an answer for him because at that time I was like, I'm just trying to figure out how to sell this chair. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) But it really was a moment of like reflection for me because I knew that if I kept turning away these opportunities of people who saw something special in what I was doing and wanted to work together, if I was turning them away, it was going to mean the end of colony. So I really opened it up to much more the thinking of, you know, if, if we seem like, if they seem like good people, if the project seems interesting, if it's something that we, I think we can do that the team can handle and that we would be good at, if it's like copacetic with the, with the morals and the ethos of what Colony is and started with, then, then we say yes and we find a way. Colony essentially combines the co-op model with a consultancy and an incubator so is it scalable? Is that something you want to do? Oh, Scott, <laughs> this, <laughs> this is the question that keeps me up at night, you know, because people don't see me and think, oh yeah, she, she wants to be Jeff Bezos, you know, like that's not, that's not like who I am, but mm-hmm. of course, of course, I want to grow the business. Of course, I want to scale up. You know, I want to find a way to make Colony sustainable in the long run beyond just my sort of willpower and hard work. Yeah, that's something that I'm, that I, that it really keeps me up at night. It's something that I, I don't know the answer of how to, I don't have any, I don't have any templates to follow as to how to scale it. 
but I never have. I've never had a template on how to do this. So, you know, that's the next big question for me of like how, I think, I think it's common for small businesses to struggle with, with scalability and particularly for Colony because it's so diverse and in the work that we do. Mm -hmm. um, and it really is, and it has always been very sort of dependent on my creative output, my, my personal Gene Lin's creative output. The, the idea of scaling is that's the real giant that I'm trying to sort of face right now. So interior design and home renovation professionals found themselves, you know, surprisingly busy throughout the pandemic as yeah. homeowners began to reevaluate how they used existing spaces and often deciding to make big changes to even the smallest of rooms. How have independent designers fared during the pandemic? You know, that has been such a big surprise. You know, when we first were facing the shutdowns around COVID, I panicked, Every, all of my designers panicked, everyone panicked. We thought we were out of business. We thought we'd be out of business in three months, but actually in three months, I think everyone, with the exception of a handful, I think generally our industry, our little niche of the industry got busier. There's so many challenges. I think the challenges that the big guys face, we are facing too, except that big guys have like, they have more in their arsenal to be able to, to deal with the supply chain issues and, you know, labor issues and stuff mm -hmm. like that. It, at least it feels that way. It's just such a weird feeling that the world is putting out all these fires and business in the design industry has been pretty consistently up. I would say that, you know, the luxury home market is booming. That must have helped bring attention to your independent designers yeah i mean i think that the people who have admired what we do um but didn't have the project for it or that you know their home was totally was totally furnished found space for us and found re like going back to that conversation about why they were why they sort of want to have independent design in their in their homes they found those reasons to be even more pressing and even more important. I, I think I think what what we've gone through as a as a society has made us all sort of reevaluate what's important and what what kind of life we want to lead and how we want to spend our money and how we want to spend our time. You know, and I think I can't compete with the IKEAs and the Amazons of the world except in that we have our integrity and our story is certainly that has made a difference in, in the bottom line for us in the past two years. So what design trends have you seen that are emerging in the next 12 months? The trends are about lasting, lasting luxury, <laughs> lasting quality, lasting um, meaning in, in things, you know, I think, but what I see here is people caring more about where something comes from and what something is versus just trying to fill a blank wall on their, in their room. So what can we expect from Colony this year? 
this is one thing that we've learned, I've learned in this pandemic. I keep talking about uh, the royal we as like, we're all learning from from what's what happened in 2020 and 2021. But mm-hmm. genuinely, I think putting, prescribing a set plan for ourselves, is just gonna not, it's not gonna work out that way. Right. So I think for 2022, we're gonna do what we did in 2021, which is stay open to the possibilities, plan as best we can. We're gonna have shows if, you know, public health allows. We're gonna celebrate independent design as we always have. We're gonna take on projects that we're excited by. We're gonna try to, we're gonna try to expose more and more substantive beauty to not just the industry, but hopefully, hopefully the world. But as far as like in May, we're gonna do this. In July, we're gonna do this. I, I can't, we can't do that anymore. Those days are, those days are behind me. It's much more about rolling with the punches and staking, sticking true to those grounding ethos that, that act as sort of our, our, our guide. What about getting in touch with that big box CEO that came in a long time ago? I don't I think, I think I read an article <laughs> that he got let go. I don't know. <laughs> I think Colony has outlasted his time at the big box. At the big box <laughs> Probably. Jean Lin, founder and creative director at Colony. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much. This was great.